You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're talking with gaming and esports expert, Mike Sepso. About half of America is gaming during the pandemic. Gaming is bigger than music and movies combined. This year, video game revenues will likely top $170 billion. The percentage of gamers that play professionally is small but growing. Esports are probably a $1 billion business themselves. Mike Sepso is widely considered the godfather of esports. In 2002, he launched Major League Gaming. Then in 2015, he sold the company to game maker Activision. Last year, he launched Vindex to provide infrastructure to the esports industry. A few weeks ago, Vindex bought Belong Gaming Arenas and plans to open more than 500 Belong locations in hometowns across America. Let's listen in to see why Mike thinks local arenas are the key to growing esports and what he thinks about esports as a career path and how high schools should play the game. Mike Sepso, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thanks, Tom. Hey, Mike, you've been at the, really at the heart of esports for uh, almost 20 years. Did you grow up a gamer? I did. I grew up an 80s gamer, so different than kids today. My experience was uh, an Atari and a Commodore 64 primarily. So it was a different type of gaming, but I was a pretty active gamer most of my life. When, um, like when and how did esports uh, emerge out of uh, the, the video game market? Really sort of as a business, not until the 2000s. Um, but, you know, there's been kind of video game tournaments and competitions since there's been video games. If you think like the first one was Pong, right? So it's two people effectively playing digital tennis against each other. Um, so it's sort of inherent to gaming that there's some level of competition. Most of my early gaming experience as a kid was... Um, you know, solitary, meaning trying to set high scores. Um, later on, like in high school, when there were games, you know, like Nintendo games where you were more adventure-based, you could kind of collaborate on that. But um, not until much later and until the advent of the internet when you could really um, create games that were teams of people or individuals competing against each other did it start to really gel. Um, esports actually started um, as a sport in South Korea in the very late 90s, um, primarily because the, the government of South Korea um, supported the rollout of residential broadband. So they had high-speed internet before anybody else. Um, and as a way to s- sort of show off what it could do, they helped support local cyber cafes, which effectively kids just took over and turned into gaming centers. And so that really created um, communities and competition around, primarily around a game called StarCraft that's made by uh, Blizzard. And that, um, by 2000, I believe it was, had turned into um, a cable network that was just broadcasting competitions 24-7. Um, and so that was really the first esports in the modern era that we know about it was 20 years ago. So you started uh, Major League Gaming in 2002, is that right? That's right, yeah. So what, we actually, What's the origin story? We, so, um, you know, part of it was with, that we realized this was happening in South Korea. Um, but first, it just came out of, uh, you know, my friend and I, who started the business together, had similar kind of childhood gaming experiences. He actually worked at an arcade. I spent a lot of time in an arcade uh, 
we both were Atari fans and sort of grew up in that world, but also grew up playing sports our whole lives and being sports fans. Um, and we had uh, just exited a prior company, um, a small agency that we built together um, with another partner. And we um, were in the summer of 2002 for the first time since we were young kids had the summer off basically. Um, so we spent the whole time playing video games and going to Yankees games. And <laughs> those two things combined and, um, you know, we, we started to do some research realizing that we, you know, we had to take the summer off money, but not retire at 28 money. Um, and so we were looking for, you know, stuff that piqued our interest that we could either, um, get jobs in the field or try to create a business. And this was well before the word esports was coined. We were, you know, at that point we just called it professional. The idea was to call it pro gaming or competitive gaming. Um, and we just thought out a personal experience and we liked to play at that time. It was a game called Halo, but before that it was Doom and Quake and games like that. Um, we liked to play competitively against, you know, with each other or against each other, against other people. Um, and we found out that a lot of other people did too. And it was starting to get organized. And in Korea, they were putting it on TV already. And we thought, you know, there's gotta be kind of a Bud Light and Chicken Wings American version of this. Um, and at the time, like I said, we were playing Halo on the first Xbox, which is a Microsoft game, a Microsoft gaming platform. Um, and it was the first time that there was a console. Um, so all the stuff that was happening in, in South Korea was happening on PCs. Um, the first Xbox shipped with an Ethernet port in it, which wasn't useful when they shipped it, but it was interesting because it led you to believe that eventually these things would be connected to the Internet. Um, and that led us to think, okay, this is going to get sort of big and mainstream, and gaming won't be this, you know, kind of weird, geeky thing that sometimes we would hide from our, you know, our uh, teammates on whatever high school sport team we were on at any given time in, in our prior lives. This was kind of getting bigger and more mainstream. And if we could market it as a real sport that um, felt competitive and, you know, where you'd have the same hero shots that you see from NBA games or NFL games, and we can kind of build it that way that we could turn this whole thing very mainstream and make it big. So that worked out pretty well. Um, you, you uh, that really exploded as the, as both the game market and the, and the esports grew. Uh, you, you ended up selling that company to Activision. What was that 2015? Uh, yeah. So very end of 2015. Um, but how do you think about the, both the game market and the and the esports market today maybe, maybe give us the maybe the contours of the the global gaming market first of all i think um gaming industry in general i think is um very misunderstood by the general public it's the like far and away the biggest part of the overall entertainment industry yeah no it's like bigger than movies and music combined right yes um it's just massive. I, I would bet that this year the global revenue generated by video game companies will be over $170 billion. Um, getting Which close is up by, uh, that's probably 10 or $15 billion more than we thought 
six months ago, right? Because of the because of the pandemic, pandemic spike. Yeah. Um, so you know, I I think that's the interesting thing is that while we tend to think of entertainment as movies and TV and even music and sports, um, you know, music is actually tiny as compared to the right. dollar numbers um, to gaming. Um, we think that globally the, the traditional sports business is about $600 billion, um, but that's including everything, right? Um, every soccer game that anybody pays a ticket to see and, and all the TV rights all over the world. Um, so that's, you know, that's a pretty big industry as well, but it's not as well organized um, or concentrated because the interesting thing about the, the games industry is um, – you know, you're talking about less than 100 companies being responsible for probably 99% of that, nearly $200 billion in revenue. And it's, you know, almost 40% of people on the planet play some kind of uh, electronic or video games, right? It's a massive footprint. Yeah, I think that's the other interesting thing is, you you know, when you say gamer or gaming, you tend to think of kind of young, young guys, young boys who you know, play games like Call of Duty when the reality is, um, you know, lots of their moms play games on their phone. Um, lots of people play games on computers and there's casual gaming, there's mobile gaming, which is the biggest in terms of total reach and population. And then also just parts of the world that are not fully developed um, industrially yet. Um, you know, like for instance, India has a massive population and a massive uh, smartphone penetration in, in the population and they're all gamers. Um, so it, it's become a massive, massive global, um, business because of how big the pop, you know, because of the preponderance of all these smart devices that allow you to play games. And so game studios and publishers have gotten smarter about creating different types of games for different parts of the population. And the penetration rate's very, very high. Um, the other thing to keep in mind about games is it's not a um, culturally or language-based um, type of entertainment, right? So it's it's hard to watch a movie in a different language than the one that you know. And, and because Hollywood has been kind of the top generator of film content for many decades, a lot of the world only gets English-speaking movies. And so that limits their capability to sort of be as big music a little bit less so but there's still lyrics in most of it um you know tv is restrained by a variety of different technical and, and cultural and language issues gaming is everywhere so the minute you make a mobile game and put it on the app store everybody in the world can get it and there's no language barrier there's no cultural barrier um you know routinely um couple times a day i play a super solid game called clash royale and i'm usually playing against somebody depending on the time of day I'm playing it, I'm playing against people in Asia or Central Europe or uh, South America. So you can, you know, you're constantly interacting with people from all over the world whose language you don't speak, whose cultural culture you may or may not be familiar with. It doesn't really matter. Um, and so I think that's why gaming has gotten so big so quickly and so pervasive. Uh, about a year ago, you started Vindex. Um, tell us about the the mission of this uh, new company. Um, 
yeah, so it's 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 really keyed in on a couple of major points through my career that led me to the strategy behind Vindex and to put the team together that we have and sort of the moves that we've made. Um, the, the interesting thing about esports is, you know, you mentioned it's gotten huge. It's gotten very big over the past few years. Um, I've been in, it's been around in the sort of modern form since probably 1999 um, in South Korea, and it's sort of spread throughout the world. Um, the, you know, the interesting thing that makes from a business point of view, legal point of view, I guess it makes esports different than traditional sports, baseball, basketball, soccer, whatever is those sports are public domain. Nobody controls the rights to basketball, um, or soccer or anything else. So there's leagues and federations and things like that that control the sort of competition, but they don't control the sport in esports. The the playing field, the sport is somebody's IP. Somebody owns the intellectual property rights to the game because they created it. Um, and so that creates a whole host of challenges um, that mean that esports doesn't act as a business like traditional sports does. Um, and so the, the publisher, the owner of the actual content have a tremendous amount to say over obviously how it's treated and what you do with it. Um, so when we started MLG back in the early 2000s, we were effectively asking for for permission from game publishers to use their games and organize competitions around them. And then later that turned into, you know, licensing the rights to those games and paying fees to do that. Um, and eventually that, you know, looked to be unrealistic long term. You couldn't create the same type of value in a league structure or a team as you could in an NBA or an NFL because you didn't have permanence um, to the game. So that really led to the acquisition of MLG by Activision Blizzard. The idea was, you know, if the biggest publisher with the most games in the world could also own a business that um, had spent over a decade sort of perfecting how to operate a league in esports and, you know, manage that whole process, commercialize it, and create all the content around it, um, then you could create something that had real permanence and could be very valuable. And so the first expression of that idea was the Overwatch League, which rolled out um, in 2016 and, and started actual operations as a league in 2017. Um, and the, that was a game called Overwatch that's published by Blizzard again. Um, and, you know, the the model, the structure of that league is very similar to uh, what we think of as Americans as a typical pro sports league, Major League Baseball, the NBA, the NFL, meaning there's a kind of league body with a commissioner and then the teams are franchises of that and they um, are associated with a particular city or market. Um, but that had never happened in esports before. There was nothing like it. Um, and so it immediately created, you know, very recognized, um, I guess, dynamics for lots of different constituents, the broadcasters, the sponsors and advertisers, the people that wanted to own teams. And so a lot of the, the groups that were either investors or the outright buyers of those initial franchises in the Overwatch League were people and families who owned uh, NFL teams and NBA teams and Major League Baseball teams. Um, and it just created really a substantially new era in the esports space because 
it had permanence. It had the credibility of the big publishers behind it. The big publisher meaning Activism Blizzard in this case, but also you know families deeply involved in owning these um, esports franchises like the Kraft family in Boston and the Will Ponds who own the Mets here in New York City um, and many others around the world. The the key difference was you know the core the sport is not a public domain sport. It's owned. IP by Activision Blizzard, and so Activision Blizzard was, in that sense, creating a, um, a new league and sharing some of the rights of that IP with those team members. Um, and each of them now has deep roots and infrastructure in their market. Um, the one major difference was, you know, even though we call it the World Series, we all know it's really just the North American Championship, right? In, in baseball, for instance, this sport we wanted to be global from day one, so. Um, you know, there's franchises in New York and Los Angeles and Boston, but there's also franchises in Guangzhou and Shanghai in uh, Paris and London. So from that perspective, we took the opportunity to make it truly global. So all that being said, you know, this is a thing that has existed since um, early 2017. We're now three years into that world. Um, it really did change the industry and it made all the other publishers think this is a pretty interesting business to develop and it's something that clearly we would want to own around our games. And as that's perpetuated, you know, the, the gamer base and the fan base has grown substantially as well for all those games. So when I was leaving Activision Blizzard, um, you know, I was thinking, what do I do next in this industry I helped create? And the obvious thing was, you know, if, if every publisher in the world is going to want to create leagues like the Overwatch League and or something similar for their own game, and they're going to need specialists to understand how to do that, understand how the business works, understand how the consumers think, but also have the um, technical know-how and, frankly, the technology to do it. And more and more, because esports is getting bigger and more meaningful from a dollar's point of view, they're going to want big kind of institutional solutions providers to help them execute that. They're not going to want a bunch of, you know, 20 person companies all over the world um, and have to manage a dozen different vendors in different parts of the world with one kind of esports strategy. So um, the initial idea for Vindex was how do we look at all the places that we can help provide infrastructure and expertise to the industry to help it mature more quickly and if all of our businesses align with solving some big major infrastructure level issue for the industry, we'll help grow the entire industry much faster and reap the rewards of that. So we have a sort of three-pronged strategic approach with Vindex. Um, one is to be the world's largest truly global solutions providers to, to companies in esports and gaming that want to operate big esports programs and create a lot of content all over the world for lots of different audiences. That was part one. Um, part two was with all of the publishers and leagues kind of focused on perfecting the professional level of the sport. It sort of leaves wide open the amateur systems to be organized and to create context and connectivity to the pro leagues. And the publishers would probably not have the capability to do all of those things at once. Um, and also the requirement for that is not just sort of marketing or software. You have to build real physical infrastructure too. And then the third part is how can we better utilize uh, data across the industry to help drive monetization 
and better decision making. And so this is, you know, esports is big and powerful and it's backed by a $170 billion industry, but it's not as mature as traditional sports. Um, and what, you know, at the end of the day, what drives most of the revenue into traditional sports is advertising dollars, either first party in the form of, you know, league and team sponsorships or through uh, media rights deals. And so that doesn't really exist yet in any level of scale in esports. It's still early innings for that. And so we think that that's another big opportunity where we can utilize um, data and help create marketplaces for more efficient flows of money. Um, but, you know, coming out of that, my, my um, friend and partner, co-founding partner from MLG, Sundance, D. Giovanni, and I wanted to do this, um, but we were definitely going to need help um, because all the things that we were thinking of were going to be very operationally complex and capital intensive. Um, and we happened to meet our, our partners um, who are also poking around the esports space through um, some friends pointing them, out, at them in that direction. They had a, a recent, a similar recent um, background in that they had both um, formed a company in 2012, um, sold it a few years later to a big company and stayed inside that company for a few more years to help run that business, which was kind of similar to what Sundance and I did. Uh, and their names are Jason Garmice and Brian Binder. And they're background is in asset management and financial services, um, and they built a, uh, a data-driven business in the uh, mortgage insurance field. So, you know, they didn't have any background at all in esports um, or gaming, frankly, or any know anybody in the industry, but they had been turned on to it by a few different friends that were in tra- tangential industries. Um, and so when we met, it made a ton of sense that it gave us, uh, Sundays and I, and me, the confidence that we could go after some of these big ambitious strategies um and for brian and jason i think it was um you know having real domain experts with a lot of relationships and a history in the space that um would give credibility to the things that we wanted to do and insights that um, other people wouldn't have and so it's been a pretty um amazing and quick partnership among the four of us um we just spent really last summer raising money and lining up the first couple of acquisitions that would get us into that first strategy. And, you know, really had just gotten rolling. We, we officially launched the company in October last year and we're on a path. We actually just got our first office in New York and we haven't even moved in yet because of COVID. So we've done all this and we haven't actually spent a day in our own office yet. Mike, uh, at the end of July, you announced an exciting uh, acquisition. You, who uh, acquired Belong Gaming Arenas uh, from the uh, European uh, retail giant uh, Game Digital, and you announced uh, intent to use that um, that infrastructure to open 500 Belong locations uh, in hometowns across America. Uh, tell us about that acquisition and. What do you get with Belong that you couldn't have just done uh, yourself? So the the Belong acquisition was really all about that second strategy, which is kind of how do we help organize and grow amateur esports. Um, so in the context of thinking about that, if you if you think about, um, I, I use a lot of sports metaphors because I think it's easier for people not familiar with esports to understand. But I grew up right outside of New York City. Um, and 
you know, since I was, I don't know, six or seven playing baseball, assuming I was just going to make it onto the Yankees one day. Um, and I wasn't anywhere near good enough to do that. But as a seven-year-old playing t-ball, you know, a coach could have explained to me in great detail the exact career path that was ahead of me if I inevitably did make it to play for the Yankees. Right? I would start with t-ball, go to Little League, eventually high school and, and American Legion ball, and then either college or minor leagues. And there's a whole system that's well-worn that anybody can tell you. And at each step, the competition gets increased and the coaching and, and um, sort of infrastructure increases along the way. Same thing for any traditional sport. In esports, the journey is you're sitting at home, you know, playing Overwatch or League of Legends. Um, your team and the people you're competing against, you only have in your headphones and you're talking to them, but that's it. And then the next step is it's the same thing. There is no next step. Basically, you go from home to Madison Square Garden um, and there's no in between and there's no real growth or laddering. And so some of the pro leagues have started to have their franchise owners field um, kind of challenger or minor league teams. Um, but there's really nothing in between. There's no, there's no infrastructure. So you're, you're sort of sitting there um, as a young gamer hoping somebody finds you on Twitch or sees your videos on YouTube or somebody talks about you or something like that. There's just no discovery. There's no talent development systems. None of those things exist. Um, people have tried to organize it um, purely through online capabilities, meaning you know websites that organize tournaments, um, even coaching applications and different types of software that will sort of study your own gameplay and try to make improvements for you. But there's no real holistic approach against this. Um, when I was leaving Activision a couple of years ago, a friend of mine, Martin Gibbs, who is the CEO of Game, which is the second biggest um, video game retailer in the world. That most people in the U.S. know GameStop. In the U.K. and Spain, there's no GameStops. It's a, it's a group called Game Retail, which the stores look very similar to a GameStop. They sell the same things to the same type of customer. Um, the difference was Martin um, had acquired a small local esports company a few years earlier um, that operated these big twice-a-year events where people drove all over England and brought their computers into a big hall and they all kind of linked them up and they um, play games for a few days together. And Martin just said, why don't we, instead of making them, you know, twice a year drive all over the place, why don't we try to set up these situations uh, in our existing retail footprint and see how it goes. That progressed on for a couple of years. And by the time I went to see it, it had started to mature into a really interesting system where each of the dozen or so locations they had at the time had its own kind of little league team name. Um, so, you know, like the London Lionhearts and the Stratford Raiders and things like that. Um, and they had created a system where the each location developed communities and teams in each game of different skill levels. And they were fielding them in these league competitions. And so the stores had built really strong communities and really strong identities. And they were competing in a system against each other, kind of like Little League or any kind of youth sport organized sport um that really resonated with me because it's something i've believed needed to happen for for many years um in fact if you go all the way back to what i said about south korea being the origin point for esports it was really those cyber cafes that that existed so that people could you know use high-speed internet 
um, that were taken over by kids who used them for gaming. It was really those cyber cafes that were sort of like the the Little League baseball diamonds of this sport. And I don't think it would have happened if people just had PCs at home and games like StarCraft. You really have to build in-person community. Um, it's kind of like, again, to use a baseball analogy, it's like, you know, you can um, practice skills. You can um, practice pitching or even hitting to a certain extent by yourself. But you can't practice teamwork unless you have a team. And you can't practice competing um, when there's something really on the line if you're just by yourself. You really need to be there and feel the pressure. And, and that's what turns talented people into superstars. And so, um, but it's also, you know, what what gauges, what gets people interested in doing something more than once or twice. When you build a community and there's a system and context and you're trying to grow as a human, whether that's in education or it's just getting better at a particular sport or getting better at a game. Um, and so Belong um, was the first time in the Western world that I saw um, somebody take a real approach at, at creating the right package of physical and digital and, and programming effectively. I guess for lack of a better word, I use pro programming to mean the actual creation of the league structures and how things happen within that system. Um, you know, Martin had been a friend of mine through the industry for a few years. I actually, when I left Activision, um, went over and spent a week with him and the team and then ended up spending a few months helping them kind of re rewrite or, or um, um, you know, sort of realign the business plan for that business. Um, and it continued to take off and grow. And so as we were getting ready to launch Vindex, um, I had, you know, kept in touch and up to date with how Martin was progressing with the Belong rollout in the UK and it was continuing to proceed well. But there were some blockages, you know, one, they, they didn't feel confident taking it international. Two, they had kind of capped out on their ability to create the league programming structures and those kind of things. Um, and outside of the UK, they didn't really have any connectivity to the global esports uh, phenomenon that was happening. And so it became clear that we could do a really interesting acquisition where we would sort of buy that, that brand and that business um, from game and then kind of license back. And you can think of it as sort of a franchise structure like McDonald's license back the, um, the operating rights to game to operate our belong locations across the UK and Spain and their key territories. Um, and Martin is coming to join Vindex as the CEO of Belong Gaming, our, our new business unit. Um, and we will be investing um, a lot of time and capital and resources and building a similar physical infrastructure um, throughout the U.S. and then internationally and in parallel continuing to develop all of the contextual programming, um, you know, continuing to refine that mix of leagues and tournaments and how, how all the locations compete with each other and how that levels up into more professional esports over time. Um, and we're, we're enhancing all of that by literally putting all of that programming knowledge and everything that we know about esports and league structures and things like that into software. Um, that will be the software platform that operates every consumer experience in our belong network and each of the stores themselves. 
how how big are these uh, arenas going to be? Are they storefront or big box? Yeah, they're um, generally speaking. Um, you know, the the UK the sweet spot seems to be somewhere between the mid seventies to one hundred and ten, one hundred and twenty individual stations, and that takes five to six thousand square feet um, of actual floor space. Um, so, you know, and they could go up and down in scale based on you know, the market, the location, how many locations you have in a particular market, those kind of things. Um, but you need enough. It needs to be big enough so that you can really create a, a community of, of players, um, but not so big that it needs, you know, massive events all the time to be sustainable. So um, the idea is really, you know, if you think about what esports is today, again, using the baseball analogy, it would kind of be like, we have Major League Baseball and the World Series and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, little league and high school baseball exists, but there's no baseball diamonds. Um, and so what we're going to do is really build a much better, broader little league and, and high school version of esports across lots of different games and integrate that into a platform that powers the best physical infrastructure in the world. So the, the belong centers are going to be in retail locations, shopping malls, shopping centers. Um, you know, in, in big cities, they'll be in shopping districts and places like that. Um, but they're really kind of, you know, it's, it's somewhat of a mix between what's a baseball diamond to a little league player with the sort of programming and community building of more recent kind of fitness phenomenon like soul cycle. Uh, Mike, we're seeing a lot of high schools and colleges, um, get uh, involved in esports and sponsoring teams and, and building out their own. Um, physical, uh, physical presence. Um, so a couple of questions here, I guess. First of all, is, uh, is esports uh, a viable career pathway or are there more than one career pathways here? And w- what role um, can and should high schools and colleges play? So, um, you know, there's a lot of interest in it because it's, it's what students are doing, right? Um, I'm not sure that there needs to be a direct role for high schools and colleges in this in the similar manner that they approach traditional sports. Um, you know, I, if our business model relied on me convincing um, school superintendents at school districts around the country that they should build esports centers, I don't think anyone would have invested in my idea, and I don't think it's a very good one. I don't think that's where school resources should go. Um, I think that should be left to the private industry to, to make work, um, which is one of the things that we're going to try to do. Where, where I do think it makes sense is, um, you know, one of the nice things about esports is that it's gaming, which is inherently somewhat different than traditional sports. And I grew up playing, you know, I grew up a student athlete, and I think it's um, incredibly re- rewarding to combine athletics and education most of the time. I think when it relates to esports, um, there's probably a slightly different model that'll work just like there was in the creation of the professional leagues. They're not exactly the same as the NBA and the NFL. Um, I think private industry can push a lot more of this and make it more accessible than it would be if it had to go through the scholastic systems, but there should be an association. And I think the nice thing about gaming and esports is it inherently has direct ties to STEM education uh, systems. That's, you know, you can't make a video game if you don't have, software engineers and artists. Um, you can't, you know, sort of 
build an, an esports infrastructure without really understanding how the science behind it all works. And I think there's um, direct applications between the two. So my suggestion to educators is to utilize gaming and esports um, sort of in the more immediate to push student interest in, in STEM education um, subjects and secondarily to sort of widen that out even further. Um, so with the rollout of Long, we're currently investigating um, very seriously a, a variety of different educational tracks that will be um, present in the platform itself. Um, so we're looking at a lot of different things. And the obvious stuff is, hey, you know what? To, to, um, to play esports at the top level, you need a really high-end gaming PC. And all the best pros in the world do that by building their own. Um, and to build a PC, to put a PC together, you need to understand something about physics and electronics and science in general. Um, you know, and, and games are software. And to build software, you need to know how to code and you need to do a lot of things like that. So I think, you know, that's the obvious stuff that for us creates a direct connection be- between educational systems and esports and what we're going to build with Belong. Um, but I also just think, you know, I, I remember as a kid in the 80s, some of my younger teachers using hip hop, you know, references to make me get more interested in things like physics and reading. Um, and I think for educators today, even a baseline understanding of gaming and esports will, will win a ton of interest and respect out of hard to reach students. Um, I think it's a similar kind of, you know, it's a generational cultural phenomenon. There's very few people over 35 that know anything about esports. Um, and there's very few people under 20 who don't know a lot about it. What about for a community? Uh, is this, uh, are there going to be a handful of communities around the country that have a big arena that hold uh, tournaments? Is, is this, is esports something that um, economic development directors should be working into their plans? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I do think there's a really significant economic development opportunity specifically behind what we are doing with Belong. Um, but it has also been, you know, I again, we've been producing major esports events. My team and I, who have now been through MLG, Activision Blizzard, and Ninja Vindex, since the early 2000s. So we've been working with... Um, you know, convention and visitors bureaus and different economic development groups at in major markets around the U.S. for a decade and a half. Um, the interesting thing to me about Belong is each center um, requires a minimum of eight full-time staff. And from that perspective, you know, at a minimum over the next five years, we plan to create 4,000 jobs. Um, those jobs will be a mix of kind of younger people who are interested in gaming um, probably students who are part-time workers, along with a whole new host of managers who have to understand, um, you know, not just more kind of like the, the run-of-the-mill traditional retail, retail stuff that you would know as a regional manager of a retail chain, for instance, but also the experiential side of this, the connectivity to the larger esports world, um, and, and also sort of elements of what we'll do along the educational tracks. So esports today, is it about a billion dollars? How big is the market and wh- where do you see it a couple of years from now? The best guesses or the best estimates as to how big the industry is puts it at about a billion dollars. But I think that's 
very specifically the revenue generated by teams and leagues in the business. So like the Overwatch League and Activision Blizzard, my former employer, um, and then the team franchises. On a global basis, that's what um, that's what it looks like now. But I think the reality is it's, it's a significantly bigger industry already when you try to um, when you think about all the other things that are happening in the larger esports space. There's a lot of independent tournaments all over the world happening that aren't tracked in those numbers. Um, there's a lot of ancillary businesses like like what Vindex is that are not really tracked in those numbers. So it's a good leading indicator that the the teams and leagues themselves will be generating something like a billion dollars this year. Um, you know, the, the like traditional sports, the live event part of esports was hit by COVID. So that may, that may push into next year. Um, but the growth rate is pretty staggeringly high. Um, less so on the revenue side, more so on the audience side. Um, we're, I think we're now north of 600 million uh, regular esports fans, meaning people that are tuning in once a week to watch some kind of esports. Uh, so it's a big, big global. Wow, audience. that's huge. And Mike, I, I mean, we're living through uh, an awful global crisis, um, but it, it's one that a handful of different sectors um, have have seen their their plans accelerated by a couple of years. And it sounds like uh, both gaming and esports uh, probably gained a, a, a year, maybe even two of, of progress as a result of uh, the, the pandemic. It, it feels like you started your business at about the right time and caught an early wave. Is that what it feels like? Um, not only that, but, you know, per- personal to me is we, we raised capital for, a, a, you know, a very um, speculative kind of high risk new endeavor and finished all the fundraising in February. So I've never fully understood like I do today, the saying I'd rather be lucky than smart. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's, that is really good timing. Um, And, and I suspect you're, you know, there's, there's a few downsides. There's some schools and colleges are cutting esports programs, but um, uh, it's, it feels like there's just nothing but growth, uh, for the coming year is that uh, what it feels like to you i think gaming you know meaning that the sort of core gaming business the video game publishers like uh ea and take two and activision blizzard um and riot and other in epic uh who are private companies but so enormous in the gaming space um they've seen a pretty significant increase in engagement and usage and revenue growth obviously right if you you know, it turns out if you um, tell kids in the developed world they're not allowed to go to school and they have to stay home, they play a lot more video games. So right. that's not surprising. I think the other thing that maybe was um, less obvious to people is it's not just kids. It's everybody. Everybody who was in lockdowns and couldn't work or has, has um, been laid off, everybody's playing a lot more games. Um, and you're see- it's a similar dynamic you're seeing in streaming services like Netflix. Um, but in gaming, generally speaking, the game publishers make more revenue as people play more games. With, with Netflix, you pay a flat monthly fee, even if you leave it on 24 um, seven. So that you know, you're seeing more of an uplift in the actual um, financial performance of the big game publishers. Um, esports was was hit particularly hard, like traditional sports. You know, we had 
um, a lot of business drop off in early March when live events for the summer got canceled. Um, and we don't know yet how long that's going to last. So from that perspective, um, there's a pretty significant short-term hit to everybody's business on the esports side of things. Um, the recovery, you know, looks to be very strong because of the underlying performance of the games industry, but also because, you know, esports was able to move to virtual quickly. You you can't move to a virtual baseball game, right? So the Major League Baseball had to wait um, until was it last week, right? A week before last to start having games and you can't have fans and the NBA has got its Orlando bubble. I think those things are, um, you know, that's a tougher way to sort of try to win back some revenue. I think those are for traditional sports. It's mostly about keeping fans engaged for a year while we can wait for the COVID situation um, to be over and then get back to normal. Esports was able to move to a virtual environment and have players still play their matches, but from home or from their team facilities. Um, so that was a definite help. And I think what happened, we saw in sort of March, April, May, and June of this year, when there was no traditional sports happening um, in most of the world, there was a lot of esports content. And so people started tuning in and it, it got a kind of moment um, of mainstreaming that certainly has pushed the surge forward. I think um, shown a lot of people that were not necessarily... Um, previously esports fans that is actually very interesting content. And if you're a sports fan and you have any uh, interest in video games at all, you probably really like one esport league or another. Um, so those things combined point to a pretty um, strong recovery. But I don't think, you know, the reality is the esports, the, the esports side of the video gaming industry um, will not fully take off until we're past COVID and we're in a safe environment. Um, but, you know, you, you can't doubt how much attention has been drawn to the overall space, to the teams and players, um, and how much the financial performance of the big game publishers has outpaced anybody's expectations this summer. Um, you can see it in their earnings reports. It's just massive, um, massive increases in engagement and overall player base. And I think all that very good for you. Super, uh, super interesting space. Uh, thanks um, for the overview, um, Mike. Uh, congratulations on uh, on getting capital raised and making uh, a super smart acquisition uh, during the pandemic. Uh, we'll, we'll keep our uh, our eyes out for uh, Belong Arenas uh, all over the United States. Thanks for uh, joining us on the Getting Smart podcast. Thanks for having me, Tom. A big thanks to Mike for joining us on this week's episode. We appreciate his advice to engage learners in STEM fields. For more on the topic, see episode 238 with Chad Dorsey from Concord Consortium. I've got it linked in the show notes and on the blog. All right, that's it for today, listeners. But before you go, don't forget to hit subscribe and rate and review the podcast. We love reading your reviews and being subscribed will make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.